You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas behind your favorite online brands. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Ryan Babenzine, welcome to the show. Hey, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you are the founder and CEO of Greats, digitally native sneaker brand. People might have heard about it. How do you describe Greats these days? Well, <laughs> these days, that's funny. I mean, I describe it the same as, as I, I always have. Uh, we're a digitally native footwear brand. The big difference is we added women's about a year and a half ago because we started as a men's focused brand. Although the market would say we were a direct-to-consumer brand at one point, and we always thought that kind of didn't really resonate with us because we had always wanted to open stores, and we always said we might have a, a wholesale partnership or two, and that's where we are today. We're, we're digitally native, so most of our business is driven online. We have two stores, one in Venice and one in Soho, New York, and we have one partnership with Nordstrom. Yeah, I say these days because in, in startup world, things change. You kind of changed the definition. We were just joking before we started recording. You, you've you known about us since the olden days when we were making <laughs> fabric dyes before we started getting into packaging and that kind of stuff. So I don't know. It sounds like you've had a pretty consistent definition of what you were trying to do this whole time. And that came from, I'm guessing, your background in the shoe industry, going back to your days at K-Swiss and Puma. Can you describe a little bit more about your background before greats? Sure. Um, I've, I've had like quite a curvy career path, if you will. After graduating college here in New York, I, I majored in e-com and I went to Fordham and I moved to LA and, and started as an assistant at a talent agency and ultimately became a, a manager uh, representing actors. Wow. And, and I did that for, you know, the first third of my career. In that process, I started to kind of consult streetwear brands that were looking to get into music videos or get on the back of a celebrity, which was fairly new. It was kind of a new idea. You know, I, I understood the culture of what street, streetwear was. I think streetwear today is very different than it was, but I was a consumer and active participant in building that culture, if you will. And then from there, I, I went and became the head of entertainment marketing at Puma. And I had I wouldn't consider myself a sneakerhead. I, I'm, I don't really collect sneakers, although I was always obsessed with sneakers. So it was a different thing when I was a kid. You know, you, you could get that thing, that rare sneaker, but you wore it. You know, you didn't really save it or trade it or flip it. You got it and wore it because that was how you, you know, showed your peer group that you... Yeah. You had something they didn't. <laughs> but wait, in that time at Puma, you was it really about like developing relationships and getting famous people to wear Puma or what was it? Yeah, you know, Puma was a pioneer in 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 celebrity marketing and I had joined the company when um it was in a pretty robust turnaround and the the guy that bought it or bought the majority of the company, this guy Arnon Milshan was a big Hollywood producer. He was also an arms dealer at one point, which is interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But um, because he was a Hollywood producer, he just leveraged all these relationships he had and got celebrities wearing Puma. He had then sold part his equity and I, I had joined right around then. Uh, but we kept that idea alive and getting on celebrities meant a lot. It still does today. Now, obviously this was before Instagram, which has created a platform that really empowers uh, when somebody with, with a following wears something. But uh, back then, you know, you got covered in Us Weekly or Entertainment sure. Tonight or something. I mean, influencer marketing is not a new strategy. It's been around for a really long time. <laughs> that's, what, <laughs> it's just, that's correct. It's just the scale of like what it means to be influential has changed, I think. It's the scale and I think it's the speed and then the platform, right? I think the speed of information has created a world where nobody has mass market share in music, in film, in television, in celebrity. They're more like, you can have a lot of followers, but are you going to be around in 10 years? If you, if you think about the first famous people on Instagram, many of them are gone, right? Whether they were models or just people with famous, you know, lots of followers on YouTube. So I think the career longevity of today's influencer is shorter 
but can go really big, really fast. Mm. And I think that's the difference between pre-internet and post-internet. There's never going to be another Rolling Stones. There's never going to be another, you know, who or, or Steve McQueen or, you know, people that had massive market share and 40 year careers today, you, you, you know, you might be lucky if you have a 10 year career and that goes all the way down into a startup land, right? Like working at a startup, people get in a startup and then they leave in a year and they go to another one and another one and another one. And they keep kind of hopping up or hopping around and all of that changed with the speed of information and the flow of information. And that's really powered by the internet. Who are the kinds of people that you were working with when you were at, at Puma or when you were in the talent agency world? I'll talk about the Puma stuff because I think it's more relevant. We do everything from creating short form programming with Fab Five Freddy on the history of the Puma Clyde. Uh, and that was kind of pioneering, if you will, where we created a, a series of five episodes that were five minutes each to, you know, Will Ferrell, who loved Puma and would wear like our Puma tracksuit to host the MTV Movie Awards. It ran the gamut, but they were generally celebrities, right? People that you actually knew that had a presence. Today's celebrity is different, and that's not good or bad. It's just different. From there, I went on to K-Swiss and became the head of lifestyle marketing, which was a little more encompassing than just entertainment, but they had seen what I was doing there. They were in desperate need of, of fixing the brand, which had become very tarnished in the market, and it was a fun challenge for me, so I, I became the head of lifestyle marketing. That included everything from entertainment, but also kind of doing more product-focused stuff. I believed, and I still do, that you, you needed product that was relevant to be a relevant brand. And I, I thought K-Swiss wasn't really getting it right. You know, there was just things they were doing as a, as a company that people didn't give a shit about. Like nobody wanted it. So I just kind of created my own little incubator and did, you know, a bunch of collaborations that I felt were more timely. The first collaboration I did was with Andy Spade and it was an, an exclusive to J Crew, and that sold out. Uh, the second collaboration I did was a series of capsules with my brother, who at the time was the creative director of Supreme. And we did this capsule of uh, called California Running. And then we did another one called California Tennis. And they were, you know, five or six pieces of really cool things that were only available at very cool stores and way outside of K-Swiss's normal channel of distribution and design aesthetic. And, and those things were working. Like they were, they were working incredible, incredibly well. And then I did a, a shoe with Undefeated that was, you know, featured in the All Gone book, which is basically the Oscars of collaborations. And it was the first time and the only time the case was, was any ever featured in that book. And that was the kind of shit I was doing, right? Like really stuff that mattered to cool kids. And that was a tough thing for case was to do and get their head around. And ultimately after a few years, I, I decided to move on because it wasn't working the way I wanted it to work at the, at the leadership level. Like they just didn't understand it. They appreciated it, but they couldn't align their distribution, their decision-making process, the types of product we were making. And, uh, and I left. What's your take on, on K-Swiss today? Cause they, I guess they got a new CEO. I saw that they did this collaboration with Gary Vaynerchuk that he was, I guess, a more of an entrepreneurial celebrity (laughs) by celebrity, you know, in, in, in today's terms, what's your take on what they're doing today? Yeah. I mean, that CEO is actually a friend of mine, Barney Waters, who I I just ran into recently. Um, Look, it's really hard to take a brand that nobody wants to touch and then reimagine it and get it to become relevant. I I think they're doing the right things, but it takes years Mm. of painful, scale back, pull it down, take it out and redo it and try to recreate growth from there. I think they're doing that. And, you know, Vaynerchuk is a really interesting idea of how they're thinking. They're not going to fucking out cool Nike. Right. They're not going to out cool Adidas. They don't have the budgets to do it. They don't have, they just, they don't have any of that stuff. They're not going to get, you know, the, the top NBA stars or whatever. No. And they, and, and it wouldn't even make sense because they don't make a basketball shoe. Mm-hmm. But, right. And, and, you know, they're a tennis brand. They're rooted in tennis. So Vaynerchuk being this kind of entrepreneur and youthful spirit and, and going after that angle, I think is, is interesting. Will it resonate 
and drive, you know, the, and scale the business? I, I don't know. Um, but I, I think what they're doing is right in that they're attempting to do something different. They can't do the same shit as everybody else. Yeah, I thought it was a good idea when I saw it come out. And I've been kind of surprised that they didn't go broader with that idea. It seems like I, I just went to their website just now and the, the Gary V shoe is in their top navigation. They haven't uh, t- taken that concept and broadened it out to whoever the five, 10 people. Is it sold out? Um, I don't know. Maybe. Because I know the first one sold out and then the second one, if it didn't, that would give you an indication of how, how sticky it is, right? If it, it should be gone at this point. Yeah. And if it isn't, then you're going, okay. Well, they're on the third one, I guess. I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> oh, is it the third one? Okay. Yeah. No, it doesn't seem sold out. Uh, oh, well, a lot of the size, sizes are gone. Okay. And this is the big challenge for a brand, right? Like, how do you, you know, this is going on with Yeezys right now. Like, it becomes first drop, second drop, third drop. All of those are just like ignition. People are going crazy. They're sold out. They're reselling for you know, crazy markups. Then recently, you know, it's like, Hey, we're putting out a million units and they're still available because nobody wants them because creating demand and then selling lots of stuff. It's hard. It's really hard to find the right balance. And, you know, even Adidas is struggling with it right now. So, um, but that's what brand building is. And and those who do it well can, can find the right, you know, razor's edge of, of the right balance of, What's the, what's the right amount? There's certain product that you should never go too wide with because it just won't be interesting anymore. Uh, you still need your core business, but there's marketing stuff and those are collaborations in general that you need to manage tightly. Nike, Adidas, Puma, these are companies that are, what, 70, 80 years old now? How, how long ago were they founded? Yeah, I mean, the, like Puma and Adidas are from the mid-40s. I think it's 1946. Yeah. K-Swiss is 1966. Nike's 1973, depending on what version of the story you read. Uh, yeah, they're they're 40, 50, 60, you know, decades old. We're we're four and a half. <laughs> it's pretty amazing they've managed to stay relevant this whole time, and especially in the past ten to twenty years, that the fact that Nike's still kind of the top brand, I think, speaks to what you're talking about, which is just the power of building a, a great brand, but also managing it over time is difficult. It is. I mean, it, it, I think, you know, Nike's is, has done it the best, right? They, when Nike launched, Puma and Adidas owned the sports shoe market. And I mean, owned it like together, I think it was 90%. I think that's what the number is. Yeah. And then there were some smaller players at the fringe, but in a matter of 10 years, they became number one. So that, that shows you how good they were at marketing. And, and that's what I, I think all great brands have in common. Uh, they're really good at marketing and getting, creating awareness. You have to create great product, but that's not enough. Mm. That's just table stakes. So to, to go in and eat Adidas's lunch in 1985 uh, was a big deal. And it shows you what's possible. And we, we look at the market the same way. We're, we're not a technical footwear brand, meaning we don't make shoes for sport. We're a, lifestyle, we're a lifestyle sneaker brand. We want to make shoes for your life off the court, which is basically where you spend most of your life, even if you're a professional athlete. What can happen in 10 years is a lot. And, and we're not even halfway through that yet. And we just got put on footwear news, you know, most powerful in footwear after four and a half years. So I, I think we're making the right moves. We have a long way to go. And I mean a long way, but I think we're doing things right. Uh, and if we just stay true to who we are, I think we're going to create a really successful business. And to that point, the, the, the philosophy that you launched with, which still seems to be the one that you're pursuing is, is having these silhouettes that everybody in the industry is doing, but try to distill them down to the perfect version of it and bring it to people in the digitally native way. Is that, is that fair statement? Yeah, that's accurate. I mean, right. Like we, we, the way we would describe it internally is we create premium quality essentials, right? You know, we make a, we make a sneaker in Italy called the Royal. It's the most accessibly priced luxury shoe from Italy in, in the world. Premium everything, handmade in Italy. And our closest competitor is now about 50 bucks more than what we what we do. And that's another digitally native brand. Prior to all of those copycats, there was a brand that sells, started at 450 and that was the close that was the cheapest price you could get from an Italian made luxury sneaker. 
we came in and we're, we're at 180 or 179. So the, the model of distribution allows us to price it that way. We, we, we invest in premium materials though. So the savings we make or the margin we make by not wholesaling, we reinvest that in the products, right? So we, we have premium everything. And then direct is just 10 years ago, it was very clear that the wholesale business was going to change rapidly. And, and you can't, you know, you've seen it. You've seen the shrinking of retail. You just don't need as many stores anymore. That doesn't mean retail doesn't work, right? We, we're in Nordstrom's and, and, and it works incredibly well because they happen to be the best in the space. We have two stores and our stores work really well and we're going to invest in more stores. But you don't need thousands of doors like you used to because the, the volume is picked up on mobile commerce or, or e-commerce. How does the margin work, though, when you're, you're dealing with Nordstrom? Isn't it a, a wholesale type of model there? It, it is. Uh, and, we, and we make less margin. But that part of the business is our smallest part of the business, and it serves other needs, right? It, it actually exposes our brand to a large audience and large customer base uh, without us having to market that, right? Just by being on the floor uh, and being brought out with from the sales team at Nordstrom, uh, we're getting uh, exposure that we would have to get uh, some other way. Uh, many times, having to you know pay for marketing in in whether it's out of home or uh, Instagram ads or podcast. So it it brings value to the business and and creates a halo effect for greats. Uh, simply by just being included in the conversation, if you will, on the floor. So we do make less margin, but but the benefits are accretive to the business. When you say Nordstrom is the best, is it the, the, the customer service that they have there? Is it the locations? Is it, what is it that makes them the best? That's all part of it, but it's, it's more than that. I, you know, they, Nordstrom started as a shoe store, one shoe store in Seattle, and they are known for decades to, to provide the best customer service in the world. We have a lot to learn from them, frankly. And yes, they are economically sound <laughs> where other retailers are on very shaky ground. So that's one, that's a practical kind of business decision. But more importantly, or equally important is, is how, how they treat the customer and how they serve their client. And, and that's really important for us. Like if you experience greats in a Norseman store, we want to make sure that the sales team is educating you on what we are and how we do it and why it's $180 uh, as opposed to $500. And they do that better than any retailer we've ever met. And we, we really did have the opportunity to, to go to pretty much any major retailer we wanted, they had all asked us to kind of distribute with them. And, and Nordstrom was really the only one we thought was qualified. Uh, so it's, a, it's been a great partnership. It's only a year old, but it, it's been a, a unique relationship for us. So going back to the, the, the concept of silhouettes, how did you come to that philosophy or that strategy? Well, it was our design thesis that there really are you know, a handful, we'll call it 10 classic silhouettes in the sneaker space that are always there. They may change on the fringes, like a certain silhouette may be slightly more popular at one period of time and then another one comes in. But this rotation of 10 is kind of where we started to think about, well, what would we make? Do we want to reinvent the sneaker? And the answer was no, we, we don't, nor should we. It's like, if you create a silhouette, that explodes on the market, it's generally going to go away equally as fast. And, you know, in, in the lifetime of greats, you, you remember the wedge sneaker that every g girl had about seven years ago? Yeah. 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 When was the last time you saw that? Or before <laughs> that, you know, the shape up, uh, which sold millions of pairs and then disappeared off the face of the earth. Those are the types of silhouette trends that we don't want to be involved in. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So we we looked at the we looked at the market, picked the silhouettes we thought mattered and were never going away. And what is the version of a white T-shirt or a pair of jeans or a pair of khakis or a pea coat? And then we started working around those, and that's where the name actually came from. We were going to work around the greatest silhouettes uh, in the in the sneaker space, and then invent or reimagine price to quality ratio, you know, premium luxury out of Italian, better comfort, more, you know, a cleaner style. So not so quarter panel branded like a sports shoe, right? I, I, you know, 
I have friends at every other brand and I've worn every brand and worked at some of them. But the idea of me wearing, you know, big logos on the side of a sneaker every day at work, just right. it doesn't resonate for me anymore. And it doesn't with most people. But in addition to that, people wear sneakers to work every single day, right? That's become the new uniform, uh, very accepted. The, the casualization of the workplace has helped drive the growth of sneakers recently. And we don't think that's going away, right? The companies that are launching today are generally startups, right? So they don't launch with like a suit and tie policy. No, no kid come, is coming out of school where he has to wear a suit unless he's going to be a lawyer or a banker. So that will likely never change. Yeah. You know, we, this is the space we play in. The classics are what we're inspired by. And, and I think that you, that shows in, in all the shoes we make. You, you mentioned that these are lifestyle uh, styles of shoes but they do come from companies like Adidas and Converse and, and those companies who kind of invented those those styles in the first place. I have no particular sense of how, when you look at those incumbents, those old school companies, what is the the slice of their revenue that comes from those classics versus whatever they're doing that is like the trend of the day? Well, I, I don't have hard numbers, but I do know generally that the classics are what drive the volume. Mm-hmm. Talking about Nike, the Cortez or the Air Max 90 are still meaningful parts of their business where the Flyknit is growing, but not nearly as established as the other ones. And and that'll change, I'm sure, over time. Like the Flyknit will become a classic in 20 years, but all of that takes time. Mm-hmm. But if you, if you just walk around, right? Like forget about looking at a, a, a report. Just walk around and look at people's feet. Yeah, You're going to see a, an Adidas shell toe that's been around for 40 plus years. You're going to see a Dunk, which came out in the mid 80s. Like These are shoes that just have lasted for decades. That should be the indicator of what drives growth or what drives volume. Sorry, not growth comes from the newness. That's, that's true. Um, but the volume of the business is still done in these classic styles. Yeah, but you mentioned Nike being the best at... Uh, marketing their brand. And I, I, if you think about like the engine for that marketing, I do think things like Flynet or Air as a technology, these material science innovations that they've done, you know, every decade there's been like one big material innovation that they've put all of their efforts behind has been like the, what propelled the brand forward. If you don't have that thing that is like really unique on the market, how do you grow, how do you grow the, the name greats? Well, I, I don't believe you need a cushioning technology or sure. a material technology <laughs> yeah. to do that. I, I think, you know, when was the last time you saw Nike shocks in the market, right? Like there was a, there was a couple of years where Nike shocks were everywhere and then they weren't. I'm just playing devil's advocate, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I, and this is no disrespect to Nike. Yeah. I, think, I think every great company is really good at marketing. Nike in the incumbents, Nike's the best. Apple, Coca-Cola, Disney, like these are all brands that have great marketing skills. Uh, and we think we're really good at marketing as well. How do we get mass scale? Yeah, that takes time, right? The word greats is, we, we, we started with the word greats. We thought that was a really memorable, familiar word that we were going to then unpack over time, Yeah, right? So we're year four and a half. Uh, we'll be five in June. We're still really only talking about us as a sneaker company, but there's other categories we're going to go into. There's meanings that we're going to start talking about. Like, what does it mean to be one of the greats? Again, like when we were naming the business, we thought about the name is going to matter. So we better pick a name that we can live with for decades, not a couple of years and then have to figure out what are we. And be one of the greats is actually a statement we use at the company and a hashtag that we put out on social. And it means to be your greatest self. Now, we sell sneakers, but we also think we can inspire to be a better person. And we're going to start to unpack that. And like, as all of this comes together, you'll start to see acceleration in the, in the brand awareness, but you just can't do all of that in year one. You know, I wish you could, you can't, you know, moving the, the rock from zero to one inch takes insane effort. Like it's really hard to start a company from zero. 
and as it starts to roll, the momentum starts to pick up and it gets easier and easier to roll the, the rock. Uh, you know, we're getting into that time where the, the rock is starting to move really fast. Awareness is getting bigger and bigger. And we believe in the next few years, you're going to know great, like the people you talk to on the street will know greats. At least that's our plan. Lumi is another word which has no real meaning. Like if you if you poke into it, it, it came from just the word light in Latin that it was very related to our first business. But having a name that doesn't tie you to a specific product or place or something like that really allows it to evolve over time and doesn't limit you from being able to do anything. It's just, Greats is an awesome name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we think Greats is a very elastic word, right? It can... It's it's aspirational to be great. It's inspirational to become great. It's it's inclusive because I think everybody can be great. Yeah. That doesn't mean you have to be a billionaire hedge fund manager. It just means that you have to be the greatest thing of what you are. You can be a barista or a, a street sweeper. But if you do that with integrity and you do it with passion and you do it as good as you can, you're great at what you do. And, and I, I really... You know, fuck, you know, not to get political, but now more than ever, I think we need people like really taking a hard look at themselves and be like, am I contributing value to my society? Am I doing the right thing? Can I be a better person? And you can do that in many, many ways, but that's what it means to be great. And, and we want people to be inspired to do that, whether they buy our sneaker or not, right? There's messaging around this that is not like buy my sneaker, we just want to kind of reinforce this idea that everybody can do something that matters and, and uh, we, we happen to sell sneakers. I think that's a, a very inspiring message. And I think that in general, people do somehow get very inspired by their clothing. It's a, I was going to ask this question. It might sound dumb, but why do people love sneakers so much? <laughs> like really why? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, look, I think sneakers for boys, right? Like when you're 12 and up, and now all the way through your fifties, it's social currency. Like if you have that thing that whatever that thing is of the moment, people go, Oh shit, you got the new thing, you know, whatever that sneaker is. And so that's, that social currency translates all the way from teenage all the way up. And, you know, you can buy into hype, which is generally what that is. Right. But that's fleeting because all of those hype things that ultimately go away, and they become less and less important. And we talked about that with Easy. Uh, you put a million units in the market and not and the cool kids don't want anymore. The social currency goes down and it's not as important. Uh, we believe kind of premium quality, lasting, stylish, but not bleeding edge trend. That's the lane we're in. And, you know, at the end of the day, sneakers are just comfortable, <laughs> yeah. right? Like I, I don't want to wear gym shoes to the office and I don't think anybody should, frankly. But- that there's a big range to play in uh, where you know it doesn't look like you're going to CrossFit. There's a lot of sneakers in the market that you can choose from that are going to go. They go great with jeans, khakis, shorts, suits, you name it. And they're just more comfortable than a traditional leather sole shoe. It's that that's simple. Comfort in the end is is more valuable than anything. I heard you say hype is the enemy of brand. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Oh man, how much time do we have? Um, we got another 20, 30 minutes. <laughs> no, I'm Let's kidding. try it. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> hype, hype is the enemy of brand. And, and really what I mean by that is if you are the most hype thing today, you're unlikely to be meaningful tomorrow. And we just talked about it. There was a time when a Yeezy was so, the, the demand for it was so insatiable. People were willing to pay you know, 10X the, the retail value of the shoe. And now they're just sitting in, in the stores, right? So that's an example of hype. And you're talking about a guy who has the high, you know, Kanye is famous globally. He, he, he can pull the string whenever he wants, but he can't sell a million units of this last drop. And if that doesn't show you how damaging hype can be, I, I don't know what other example to give. Damaging to the business is, is what you mean. Damaging to the brand mm. and, 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 and obviously ultimately the business. But if you're building a brand and you want it to be around for longer than a few seasons, you have to think differently. Do you want to be relevant? Yes. Do you want to be so hype that you 
become unpopular on the downside of that hype cycle? No, we don't. Some people do. If that's your strategy, great. If you think you can recreate the hype over and over and over for for decades, that would be amazing. I have not seen anybody accomplish that yet. It's interesting. To play devil's advocate, in other categories outside of shoes, one of the trends that we're seeing from, from working with a lot of brands at Lumi is the fashionization of every other category. Shoe is already very fashion-forward category, but you can see brands who are taking the concept of fashion into toilet paper or toothpaste or something and creating packaging or a brand around it that is very of the moment. And I guess the idea is they don't really care if that trend goes away because they'll be ready with some other brand of of toothpaste or something else three, four, five years from now to replace that. And it's really the same product in a different outer shell. At the moment, that may seem like it's going to happen over and over and over, but I would say it likely won't. And I, I know what you're talking about, and I'm not sure who you're mentioning when you say the they, but if we're talking about venture-backed companies um, that believe we can replicate trend momentum over and over and over, I'm not sure that would be accurate. You know, I, I think packaging is important. So I'm not suggesting that, right? You guys are in the packaging business and, and, and we actually use you guys. And packaging is, is more important now today than ever when you're digitally native because of your first experience many times after you go on the website is when you get the thing in your house. So that needs to be an experience that is re- representative of whatever that brand is that you're selling. So packaging matters more now than anything no matter what you're selling, like you said, toilet paper or toothpaste. But it's always been important for what we sell for sneakers yeah. and now more so than ever. So I think packaging is just another part of the process of building a brand that resonates with the community, which has always been true just more than ever now when you're selling direct. There's a quote on your about page. And it's funny because I, I just saw this today. It's uh, from Charles Eames, the best for the most for the least. And it's, it's the thing that I always think about on every product that I've ever built has been very much in your camp in terms of trying to create something that's going to be lasting and that's going to be democratic. Why did you choose that quote or what's your relation to that idea? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it wasn't a quote that I was familiar with until greats was kind of on its way. I'd say like year one. But I had, I, I'm a fan of Eames and I, I'm sitting on an Eames chair actually and I <laughs> loved his work and I loved how ubiquitous it was, right? Like we all – like every school I ever went to had Eames design chairs and desks and that statement when I discovered it really resonated. It was like, holy shit, you can build beautifully designed things that last for decades but everybody can have one and if you can accomplish that, 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 that's impactful for me, right? I, I don't want to be a niche only for the elite brand. We have plenty of elite customers. Believe me, our, our customers are actually a large portion of them are, are quite well off. But I want to make things for the mass. That's my, that's my goal. That will take time. It's an awareness issue, not a price issue. But that statement resonated with me and I, I started using it as, as kind of a – a definer of what we're doing. And every time somebody comes across it, they go, oh yeah, that makes sense. I get it. Like you can still be a big scaled business and still make high quality stuff and it can be around for a long time. So that's what we're doing. We're recording this the week of Thanksgiving, which means it's the week of Black Friday. What's it like over there? Are you, do you feel like everything's just like <laughs> locked in and it, this is it? Or are you still making some final preparations for that? Because I know that for for many companies, it's just like, Huge, huge day. Super important for you to get it right. Yeah, I think it's it's beyond the day. Uh, I think the day, the whole know, season. The, I guess, yeah. This the month, the weekend. Uh, you know, it used to be Black Friday, Cyber Monday were like these two giant days, but now I think you see it leading into it. So it's about it's really a four or five day holiday, if you will. Uh, but it is really meaningful for us. We've planned for it. The team has done a fantastic job at you know building. And planning, we have a launch coming out right before it, and you know we're pretty locked and loaded. We've we've been on a code freeze since October fifteenth. 
So we, we, we set up and then we pull the trigger and we go. It wasn't always that way. We, you know, we were a bit more frantic and trying to get prepared uh, year one and year two. But now we're, you know, with the, the team is 25 people uh, and we get, you know, we get, to, we get ahead of these things a little earlier. So we're ready, you know, outside of something breaking in real time, which we will monitor every single second, uh, we're, we're just ready to go and get on the ride and see how we come out. What did you learn from those first couple of years that you're doing now or that you, you wish you could go back in time and, and say like, hey, <laughs> you should be ready for this on, uh, you know, the week of Thanksgiving? <laughs> well, I've learned a bunch. I mean, specifically around this weekend, it's, it's not this weekend that I, I learned the most. You know, we, about four years ago, I said, Singles Day. Do you know what that is? Do you know what Singles Day is? Yeah. Yeah. But does that affect you? How does that work? Because it's in China primarily, right? It, I'll tell you the story. Yeah, it, it, it is China. It's where it was created in China, but I felt it was a digitally native consumer holiday or was going to be one. So we don't distribute internationally. We don't sell in China. We only sell in America. But I felt that the holiday was so big and so press worthy that Americans, if we offered something on that particular day, would also respond. Mm. So it has been the third largest day of our year every year since we started four years ago. Uh, and this year was no different. This year was actually the biggest day we've ever had, but we haven't hit Black Friday yet or Cyber Monday. So, uh, But at, at this moment, 11-11 was the largest day. 11-11-18 was the largest single revenue day we've ever had in history. So we were right to say that we thought it was a, a, a digitally native holiday because our customer, it's, it's everybody here buying it, not to their, certainly not just an Asian community. So that was a big learning. I think, so these holidays in November, there's three of them and they, they really spike our revenue, you know, biggest month of the year, every year. The, the bigger lesson though was we had always taken the approach of narrow and deep when we thought about design, right? Uh, we didn't want to go too wide. We didn't want to have too big of an offering. We felt that, you, you know, we want to create these franchises. And an example of that is the Royal, which comes in a mid, a high, a low, and some come in and out of season and we take it off and bring it back. But the Royal is a franchise, the narrow and deep philosophy became more of a statement and not a practice. So we had gotten, you know, just too wide and we were designing things at the sacrifice of not having that core royal and white, black, gray, tan. We weren't in stock all the time. We were out of stock of the core to try and experiment with these new styles we were doing. And that was a, that was a huge lesson because – it did two things. One, it didn't optimize our growth or, or revenue that we could have had. And two, we were disappointing customers because they'd come to the site and they couldn't buy what they wanted. And, and it took us time to get our head around that and refocus the business, which we did earlier this year. And the results are, are you know, day and night, like just everything improved uh, from both revenue, customer experience, conversion rate. Uh, so that was a tough lesson. And I think the takeaway I would put to, to any young entrepreneur is less is more. Like find, like just focus on doing the fewest amount of things you can and optimizing the hell out of them and then do something else. Don't go too fast, too soon, too wide. What did you learn about making shoes? Because you came from more of a, a marketing background. A lot of the, the language around greats is the, you know, the quality of what you're making in Italy. When you go visit those factories, like what was it that surprised you or if anything? You know, I, I knew a little bit. I, I, knew, I certainly know a lot more now, although, you know, we have a team of, of experts that are, certainly know more about shoes than I do. Um, but I knew that Italy made the best shoes in the world. So that's where we went. And But one thing that just continues to stand out is the hand touch of making a shoe. Like there's just a lot of hands on it. It's a, a labor-driven process with craft. It is really challenging and hard to last the shoe and make it perfect and make it fit the same way every time. Uh, and humans are doing that, right? So that's always like, shit, man. People touch every single pair of these shoes and then put it in a box and fold the paper perfectly. It's not 
as automated as people think sometimes. So that that's always something that just sticks out to me. When I think about the Eames and what they did that was so amazing was they sort of had a, a thing similar to Nike, which was they innovated a lot on materials. They they were the first people to do bent plywood, you know, these curvy plywood uh, furniture shapes. They really innovated with fiberglass, uh, again, to create like very, the smooth contoured types of, of chairs. But, you know, going from plywood to fiberglass was a huge pricing change. They were able to make, like going back to that quote of making it, the best for the most for the least, they were able to take forms that they could only do in plywood and start to make them for a tenth of the price. Do you ever think about that? Like, what if we took, you know, all of the expertise that we built up doing this in Italy, made them in China or made them in Indonesia and did it, you know, made a shoe for 50 bucks. It's not going to be obviously like the same materials, the same premium quality, but maybe we can take that same expertise and do it somewhere else and get a product that's like way more accessible. So let me unpack that a little bit because we actually do, we are getting out of any stuff we make in Asia, but we, we have for years. We'll be 100% made in Italy by the end of Q1 2019. And that's not because Asia doesn't make good stuff. They do. But there is a very distinct difference when you go into an Italian factory and an Asian factory, even when you're working with the highest standard Asian factory. It doesn't have the same tone, <laughs> if you will. Sure. And I think more importantly, and this is more of a human issue for me than anything else, the lifestyle of an Italian factory worker in footwear is probably better than most Americans. They just have a different, <laughs> I, I, I mean that. And yeah. I'm not- No, I, you know, I believe it. I haven't measured it or brought any sort of study together. I just know when I go there and how they take you know lunch and I talk to them and their family life. It's a really- Nice. It, it's how I imagine what middle-class lifestyle was in the Mer- America in the 50s, where China is more of a fucking crazy, make it fast as much as you can. And the lifestyle, and even though they're growing their wealth, it's just not the same, sure. right? They, they haven't come to appreciate their life. So uh, again, for, for me, it's like, well, what does it mean to be great? I can make this stuff in Asia and yes, it'll be cheaper, because it's made in Asia, it doesn't mean it's worse. It just means it'll cost less. And yes, more people could buy it. But the bigger solve for me was I just want to make things where the people making it at the starting point have a, a lifestyle that I respect and, and admire and support. And that's why we're doing it. So the innovation for us, about though, was can we be the best made in Italy sneaker in the world and still offer the best price and use the highest material Know, the highest quality materials. That was an innovation in my mind, and 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 we think it is. Now, having said all that, we make a knit shoe. Currently, it was made in Asia, but we're shifting it over to Italy. And 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 by the end of Q1, our royal knit will be a hundred percent made in Italy, as well as an additional knit shoe that we're launching somewhere around March or April. We're using a hundred percent recycled yarns on on those knit shoes. So the the upper on the knit will be a hundred percent. Recycled yarn from Econeal, uh, meaning it's it's a more uh, sustainable, environmentally friendly sneaker. That is an innovation, right? We're using we already make the knit, and so do others, um, but they don't all use recycled yarns, and we think that's an important factor for the future. Adidas does a huge business in recycled yarns, by the way, so we're not the only ones. But that's been on our board for two years. Uh, we're finally at a place where we can actually do it. And having a, a made in Italy sneaker that's 100% recycled yarn is an innovation. So I do think about it. Uh, again, we're year four and a half, so you can't really. I don't think Nike had their kitchen until 15 years into their business. So we got we got some time ahead of us. Do you find it difficult to to convince people of investing in that quality and and saying like, yeah, I'm going to pay a little more, but this is going to last me longer? People from the consumer side, yeah. Well, look, I think that I don't think $179 is inexpensive, right? It's it's a meaningful investment in a sneaker. And there are certain people that just can't afford it. And I, I understand that. I was certainly one of them when I was younger. I couldn't afford that. And it's not for everybody. However, I think there's a broad enough audience that can. And those that do understand that quality is more important than 
you know, buying 10 pairs of shoes at $25 each. I think America in general or consumers in general are getting to a place where they're looking to invest a little bit more or just more and have something that's more lasting and better than having cheaper disposable fast fashion stuff that's disposable and ultimately doesn't bring you that much satisfaction. You know, fashion is for the youth, right? Like (laughs) when you're 15 to 25, you're doing all kinds of shit. You're wearing trends every quarter. And then you get in your lane and you're like, this is my style. And you start to invest in better things, better clothes, better watch, better shoes, better car. And you just need stuff that lasts. I mean, that's just the way it goes. I think I'm going to be, I, this is, this is where I, I need to, to become a greats customer. Cause my, I've been using <laughs> this shoe from Clark's for a little while and they stopped making it. And now I need a new shoe. I'm, I'm now fully in the old man phase where I'm just going to buy one of each thing. The other day I, uh, <laughs> this sounds extreme, but I, I decided to buy socks that'll last me for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a company out of oh man now I forget is it Connecticut or something called Darn Tough oh Darn Tough yeah I think they're in Massachusetts Massachusetts um, they make these amazing socks that have a lifetime warranty on them and you know I had a drawer full of socks and they're my go to socks that I always liked the best were the the Darn Tough but they're fifteen to twenty bucks a pair it's so expensive. Um, (laughs) but then I looked at it and I was like, I'm going to amortize this over because they're a lifetime warranty. Like how much is it going to cost me per day if I buy 20 pairs? And is that worth it compared to like buying these crappy socks that get holes after, you know, a few months and, and it was worth it. So, so it was, it was like a $200 or something investment in, you know, two weeks supply of socks. Oh, and wow. You, you went, you went all I in. I went all in because that's the only way, you know? And then, and then now, uh, I've been wearing, you know, my, my set of, uh, darn tough socks for, uh, the past three, four months and it's been fantastic. So I feel like I need to make that same commitment with the, with the shoes. So this is not going to come out before, uh, Black Friday, I don't think, but, but I'm sure there'll be plenty in stock for, for the holidays and uh, and I'm very excited to 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 start wearing your shoes because I'm really in the market for a, a new basic that will last me for a long time. Well, we we don't call it a basic; we call it a quality essential. But I know what you meant, and and just so you know, like cost per wear is a real it's a real thing. It's like a real formula, and and it's talked about in really in fashion. Yeah, quite a lot. Like Google cost per wear, and you'll get like you know. What's your cost? What's the goal of a cost per wear for for a great sneaker versus other companies? You know, I've never actually done the equation. Um, that's a really good question. You should. That should be. That should be like your main marketing uh, angle for for people I, like me. You know, it, we've talked about it. But let's put cost per wear next to like you go to the site and like there's cost per wear and it's like this costs this much. You're going to get this much use out of it. Blah blah blah. And then comp it to some other shoe that might last you. 90 days yeah, and then you got to buy a new one, right? Like then, then you start to get like, well, that, even though that she was only $95 that, that, and I have to buy two of them in six months when I buy one grades that lasts me 18 months, what's the better value? Even though the first purchase is, you know, like we're 179 and they're 95, right? People are very much in a, uh, there's this like narrative around millennials that, we have no savings because we've spent all of it on our college and and rent and stuff like that because all of those things have have gone up so much but i'm seeing all kinds of people who are very much into getting better around financial stability and i think that is the exact way to talk to them because i want to know that i'm making a good investment that i'm going to wear this shoe for a while and the cost per wear is is i'm going to start converting all of my clothing purchases in cost per wear now from now on well, there you go. And and if you keep telling the world that, then then Greats becomes more aware and we sell more sneakers to more satisfied customers that have shoes that last longer. All right. Greats.com. <laughs> go there. Uh, that's a great domain, greats.com. And uh, anything else you want to point people to? Uh, no, that's it. Greats.com. Um, maybe the New York Times. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are your other favorite uh, go-to things that you think are the greats of other stuff that you're not going to go build yourself, but you, you rely on those products because they provide good value to you. Well, 
I don't consume much in the way uh, my my fiance would say this is so not true, but I don't think I buy a lot of clothes anymore mm-hmm. um, because I've amassed things over the years that are again like just last forever, and I'm less likely. I might buy like three or four things a year or a season. I wouldn't be great to talk about that, but like things that I use every day, I'm a creature of habit. You know, like I, yeah. I live two blocks from the office. I do the same thing almost every day. I go to Equinox <laughs> in the morning. So they provide value for me. I get my Asahi bowl at juice generation. Mm-hmm. So they provide value to me. Although the market would say, well, those aren't cheap at all, right? Like those aren't cheap and they're not, you know, a $12 Asahi bowl and a membership at Equinox is out of reach for most people. But if you do it every day and it means mm-hmm. something to you, and I believe like that bowl provides the energy I need every day to go do what I do, well, then there's a there's real value in it. And people often confuse what value is and they relate it to price. Uh, and and I think they need to kind of not put value and price in the same bucket in, in, in that way. So those are just two two things. A little plug for my daily uh, yeah. usage of 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 the gym and and what I eat. The secret agenda of Well Made this podcast was just my search for the well made stuff. Because what do you really need? You need some well made socks. You need some pants, a t shirt. You need sneakers. You need a chair, a fork. You know, <laughs> like what do you? How many different things do you really need to like go through a a, a day? You know, you need to eat, you need to get dressed, you need to go to the bathroom, and that's pretty much it, right? Yeah, this is going to sound crazy as a guy that has a brand that sells stuff, but we really want you to buy better, but buy less. And I think that, you know, you can buy two or three pairs of grates and probably not have to replace them for at least a year. I mean, that would be, unless you're like climbing mountains, which we don't, you know, that's not where we're built for. Like it would, it would be strange if those wore out in, in, in a year, uh, especially if you had three pairs to rotate, then you kind of get more extension out of each one and you can probably go, you know, two years. And like, if that's who you are for us, um, we're going to be really happy. And I think, you know, you'll, you'll actually save money because you won't be buying trend shit that changes every 12 weeks. Is there a blog for cost per wear or is there someone who's out there rating things on cost per wear? Because if not, I'm, I'm just going to start that. And I mean, but maybe you and I should start a, po- a podcast called CPW. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to do this experiment. I'm going to get a pair of, of grates here and I'm going to wear them, uh, every day and tell you how much I, I value I got the, out of them. Oh, that would be fantastic. I could go, I could go on on this topic for another two hours. So I better let you get back to, uh, work. Thank you so much. If anyone wants to uh, take a look at your stuff, go to greats.com. Your Instagram is also fantastic. And that's about it. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review, could be just a sentence long, by going to iTunes and searching for Well Made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad, I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks, and see you next time.